passage is talking about men only. There's this phrase in here, maias gunaikos andra, which is just the word one, the word for woman or wife, and then the word for man or husband. And so the literal translation is a one wife husband. And so this is a phrase in here. So people, they look at chapter two, women can't teach or have authority. They look at this passage that says men have to teach. And then they look at this phrase that says an elder seer has to be a one wife husband. And they go, that means everything in this passage must be about men leading and women are excluded because a woman can't be a one wife husband if they're honoring the traditional view of human sexuality, right? And then there's a lot of debate on that that we're going to look at. The egalitarian perspective is interesting, and if you've not studied this or looked at this, you you may be shocked by some of what is in here that they will draw on at this moment. So they're looking at chapter two, and egalitarians are saying, you know, there's some cultural things going on in the background that we're not seeing or understanding that help us understand the message that Paul has given to the women there. Um, and so they say, uh, women, it's not the women are excluded from, it's not the women are not allowed to teach, but the certain women that he's addressing in that context and any women after that who carries that same pattern of domineering, authoritarian, teaching false doctrine should not be allowed to teach in the church and should be required to sit and listen first. When you come into chapter three, one of the things I think is most interesting and most confusing about this passage This whole passage that I read has no genders in the Greek. We read it and we say, you know, he should manage his house well. He should not be given to drunkenness. Through this passage, he's used this word andra for men. He's used the word guni or gunaikos for women through chapter two. And then into chapter three, rather than saying, If a man desires to be an overseer, he should be. Or if a human, there's a word, anthropos, the word that we can use that's kind of all of humanity. You could say if if a human wants to be this, but he uses this word whoever. And it's a unique word in Greek and that the masculine and the feminine forms are the same. So this word refers to the male and the female at the same time. So this passage that most likely your Bible when you pick it up is going to put male pronouns all the way through is actually going to use this indefinite pronoun that doesn't tell you the gender of of the people. uh, And I'm going to show you this in a second. Um, The second thing I've got up there is what we call the collective masculine. So another thing, there are some words in this passage that are in a male form that you could look at and say, well, they've used that word with a male ending, which means all of the things in the passage are talking about a man. But in Greek, they have have, uh, words that are masculine, they have words that are feminine, and they have words that are neutral. And so it's nothing to do with the gender of the person. It's just uh, like in other languages, it's just attached to the word. When you learn the word, you've got to learn if the word's masculine, feminine, or neutral. In Greek, uh, when you talk about a group of men, you use masculine pronouns. When you talk of a group of women, you use feminine pronouns. When you talk about random objects, they're typically neutral. And when you talk about co-ed circumstances, they always use the masculine pronoun. 
So you can't always tell when it says this is masculine, whether women are included or excluded. The only way that you know that men are, you can tell if men are excluded if they use the feminine. But when they use masculine, they could be talking about men or they could be talking about men and women. And so then you start reading this passage and you're like, what the heck could this be? The last piece in here with the egalitarian and mutualist uh, side of seeing this is, is and, and this is where I have my biggest confusion when I come to this passage. I'm like, Paul, why did you do this? Why didn't you say he could have done this? Men, pray, right? With holy hands lifted up, get rid of all your disputing and arguing. And if you want to be an overseer, this is what you need to look like. Now, women, I don't give you any authority in the church. He could go that way. But instead he says, men pray, women learn this way. Now, whoever desires to be an overseer, I'm like, why did you put it in that order? He could have made it a lot clearer, but it's just not clear. I'm going I'm to show you one more thing, and then I'm going to go back to the passage uh, and, and help you see just some of the ambiguity that exists in this passage. I just want you to see that there is often more going on than we understand, and that should give us greater humility when we pick up our Bible to read it. So this phrase, one woman man, uh, gets a lot of uh, pages and books. What does this actually mean? And there are three main ways this could uh, be referencing. So let's think from a complementarian standpoint for a minute. So men are supposed to lead, women are not, uh, or women are capped in their leadership. When it comes to this passage and it's saying an overseer should be a one-woman man, there are even questions here about what does this mean about leadership in the church? Does this mean that only married men are allowed to lead? If a qualification for eldership is that you're a, a one-wife husband or a husband with only one wife, does this mean that you have to have a wife in order to be an elder? So that would mean anyone in the church that's unmarried, that God is called to celibacy, which Paul calls a higher calling, uh, or that has been widowed uh, and has walked faithfully with God would be excluded from being allowed to be an elder within the church. So that doesn't make sense. The way it makes the least sense is Jesus wasn't married. So if that was the meaning of this, Jesus is not qualified to be a church elder, which I think is problematic. <laughs> Some people, when they're looking at this, say, well, we've got to look at context again. You're in a day and age where we read other parts of the Bible, like Solomon had a thousand wives. So this is actually saying there's polygamy happening in the world, and this is excluding to, it's basically an exclusionary term. If you have more than one wife, you cannot be an elder. You only have to have one. Um, and that's true in, uh, in the Old Testament culture, in Greco-Roman culture, where, where Paul is writing to, polygamy wasn't a common thing at all. So, do they have to be married? Um, another way that we look at this, this phrase and say what's going on is that it means that you can only be married once. So, if you've been divorced or if you've been widowed, uh, you cannot be an elder if you remarry. So, you would have to stay, you're divorced, you have to stay single to be worthy of being an elder. If you're widowed, you have to stay single, uh, 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 widowed. Uh, and I keep saying widowed, but it's widowed if I'm talking about the men, right? Um, and so, so is this, is, is, what, is he really trying to say if someone's been remarried, then they're not fit um, to, be, to be an elder? 
I don't believe that's what it's saying here either. I think based on the rest of this passage, he's giving a list of character traits. And so at this point, when he talks about being a one-woman kind of man, he's talking about fidelity. This is how I believe he's using this phrase. He's talking about someone who is committed and faithful to the relationship they're in. And and why do I think that? Because he's going to go on and give a few verses at the end about how they're supposed to lead their family and what that means for how they then lead in the church. So most people will look at this and believe that this statement is talking about marital faithfulness. So to be an elder, you can be single and not married. Uh, Or you can be married, but you've got to demonstrate faithfulness and fidelity to your wife. And that's the most common way that they understand this phrase. So what is interesting now on the egalitarian side of things, I just want to confuse you all. Uh, You got to feel my confusion. And then hopefully you'll go study and do a little bit of Googling if that's your studying. Um, If this phrase is talking about men and is talking in the masculine, you're a one-woman kind of man. If the Greek language means that the co-ed group is always referenced by the masculine version, then it is possible that they're using the phrase one-woman man just to talk about marital fidelity regardless of whether you're a man or a woman rather than trying to write, which they don't do in Greek, a one-woman kind of man or a one-man kind of woman. They don't do that. So they pick the one that fits, and that's why they do the masculine applies to both the masculine and the feminine, because it cuts down the number of words. Sufficiently confused? Is it making any sense whatsoever? Okay. I want to go back and, and look at the passage again. And what I've done is I've just, I went through the Greek... And I've taken, this is the NIV translation. And all I've done is taken out the words that are added in that aren't there. And they're mostly pronouns. So I want you to think about this. He's just told the, the men that they've got to pray. He's just told the women that they've got to live good lives and, and learn and quietness and submission. And then his phrasing. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manage their own family well, see that children obey, and do so in a manner worthy of respect. If anyone, same word as whoever, if anyone doesn't know how to manage their family, how can they take care of God's church? Not a recent convert, so they don't become conceited and fall under judgment. Must have a good reputation with outsiders, so they'll not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. There's some interpretation happening in your Bible that puts that pronoun in there to restrict this to men. Now, here's the beauty. You have to study the scripture you have to wrestle with the text to figure out whether the complementarian view or the egalitarian view is the right one. You have to do that work. You can't just listen to me say this is what I think and then accept it and believe it because you may go out teaching a lie that I'm teaching you just like you may have already been teaching a lie that someone has taught to you. So we have a responsibility to try and study this and see if we can make sense of it. Um, Someone asked a great question last week. If, uh, if the cultural context 
uh, impacts the translation of a verse so much, how can the average person that hasn't done all this study like, know what's true? Equally with this, if, uh, if there's all this going on in the background and there's words there that, that aren't there and we can't see that, how can the average person know we study? You buy a commentary and the commentary will, most commentaries will list out, here's what this side views, here's what this side views, buy more than one, uh, because usually they're on extremes, grab two or three commentaries, see what they're doing. We were never intended to interpret and translate the Bible on our own. It's supposed to be a community affair, so you get with other people. And you see in a church like this, if half the people think it's egalitarian, half the people think it's complementarian, we've got to figure out a way to work together and decide what's true and what's authoritative. The passage goes on, and I just want to highlight another couple of words. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. So he's changed from this word overseer to this word deacon. The biggest difference here in the qualifications that we're going to see is the elder has a responsibility to teach, which the deacon doesn't have. Both of them are required to live at a certain standard of living. So the deacon's worthy of respect. Notice again that where the pronouns are that you see here. Uh, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. I'm going to skip a verse. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ. So again, you've got the situation where there are no pronouns in here except this phrase about being a one-man kind of woman. And then sandwiched in the middle of a conversation about deacons, in the same way the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So the word woman here is the word he's used all the way through chapter 2 and into chapter 3. So he's referring to the people that he's just referred to before. So again, I go, why didn't he stick this with the women in chapter 2? where he was given a list of characteristics. Why is this verse squished in the middle of a description of deacons? Doesn't make sense. To make it even more confusing, the word I've said already, the word here, gune or gunaikos, can mean woman or wife. And so either he's talking to women and saying, you know, we're talking about deacons and here's some issues that people are struggling with in the culture and so here's some things that you really need to watch for in the men. And the women in this culture, it seems like they're malicious talkers. So for the women, I need to make sure that they really know that this is a character trait that's not accepted if they're going to be deacons. And then let's just finish up by wrapping up our conversation about deacons. And if that's true, then this word faithful to his wife refers to the women up above, which means it refers to the beginning of chapter three. <laughs> right? You're feeling this, right? Um, some people look at this word and say what he's doing is addressing, the complementarians would say he's addressing the deacons who are men and then saying, so deacons, here's what is required of your wife. So like if you're trying to appoint a deacon, you've got to look at this is what the deacon needs to do and then the deacon's wife needs to not be a malicious talker um, and whatever and then, and then back to the deacons. Here's what it's going to look like. So an elder doesn't have to care about what his wife's behavior looks like, but a deacon has to care about what his wife's behavior looks like, if you go that way, right? Okay, I'm glad we're sufficiently confused. So with that so neatly laid out, 
Let me come back to the main passage, uh, main point of the, the, the passage. Appoint godly leadership, right? What do we do when it's not clear? We study more. We seek God wholeheartedly. We gather with other people that love him and we study together and we share our findings and we question and we butt heads in a loving way and we try to come up with some kind of solution. We are in what I I think is a privileged position because in a church like this, there are lots of churches out there that are independent that have to wrestle with us themselves. We're part of a denomination. Our denomination takes a theological perspective on this. And so when it's not clear, I get to say, so I defer to the leaders that God has placed over me and the study that they've done over the years that's brought them to the conclusion that they've brought to. Whether I agree with it or don't agree with it, my job is to submit to the leadership that God has given me. Um, And so I'm going to tell you a couple of things uh, about where we're at as a denomination. um, And some of you will love it and some of you will hate it. And we get to walk forward in this journey together. So we, I want to remind us, we straddle two worlds, right? So we are a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. We're also running full steam into what 24-7 prayer is doing. 24-7 prayer as a denomination is egalitarian. There are no restrictions on what women can do. And they believe the calling of the church today is to empower women into every possible sphere of leadership and that the church will be most effective when that's the case. Christian and Missionary Alliance. You ready for this? (laughs) So theologically, the Christian and Missionary Alliance is what we call soft complementarian. So they say a woman can do anything in the church except hold the title elder or be the lead pastor. So women can function as elders. They can lead in the church. They just can't carry the official title. And no woman can be the lead pastor. So if you're in this church, I'm hoping you're not wanting to be the lead pastor. Because <laughs> that means I'm out of a job, right? So so long as I'm the pastor, we don't have to worry about that one, right? Because there's only one lead pastor at the moment in the way that we're structuring our church. But let me say this. So theologically, the Christian Missionary Alliance says there are differences between men and women and how they're created. There are differences in how we function in the church. And at the end of the day, the buck stops with the men. God calls the men to lead. God calls the men to take responsibility. Power in the scripture is always cruciform. That word just means shaped like the cross. Power in scripture is always supposed to be you're given it and then you are to leverage it for the advantage of the people round about you, never for yourself. You're supposed to do it in the way Jesus did, who emptied himself of equality with God and took on the nature of a servant and then crossed barriers and built up the world around him. So in the, the CMA beliefs, Men are given a responsibility to lead, but part of that responsibility is to elevate women and empower them in the church to do everything, knowing at the end of the day, they will be accountable to God for what they do and what they don't. So there's a small layer of protection between women and the decisions that are being made. Story. Uh, 
Salem Alliance down in Salem is the biggest alliance church in the Pacific Northwest. So our district alliance Northwest, Salem Alliance, is the biggest uh, of our churches. Uh, Isabel White got on to this guy, A.B. Simpson, who founded the Christian Missionary Alliance and got captivated by what he was teaching. This vision of the deeper life, this vision for churches of all types partnering together to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And she got on her knees in her room and began praying that an alliance church would be birthed in her town, Salem. She spent five years praying desperately for a church to be friends together And five years later, 1921, 20 people in her house under her leadership founded Salem Alliance Church. So this lady planted and grew Salem Alliance. A couple of years go by and she's like, I I don't feel like I'm called to lead this. I felt like I was just called to start it. So she uh, contacts the missionary MTI, the Missionary Training Institute out in New York that was an alliance training ground. She contacts A.B. Simpson and said, we've started a church. We need a pastor. Send us a pastor. A.B. Simpson sent Isabel White to be the pastor of Salem Alliance Church. No, sorry, Alice... Alice Caswell, sorry. Isabel White was the praying lady. Alice Caswell then comes to be the next leader of Salem Alliance. And I share that to say the Christian Missionary Alliance holds a soft complementarian theology, but from its inception, it has always been about empowering women to do the work that God has called them to do with no limitations on that. Um, Tomorrow, Daniel and I, I think Trudy's going, I don't know if Kathy's going, a few of us are heading up to what's called the General Council. So this is the national meeting of all the Alliance churches in the US. Um, And it's called the General, it's not called a conference, it's called the General Council because it's a business meeting. And one of the things that will be voted on by all of the pastors in the Alliance is a change to how we view the ordination of women. So right now in the alliance process, there is a a process that you walk through that you've watched me go through of getting licensed and theological examination and then all these assessments that they do on you to walk you toward ordination. And right now, there is one process that men and women go through. And when a man goes through the process and they get to the end of it, they're given a certificate of ordination. And women go through the exact same process and get to the end of it and it's called consecration. And so some people are looking at this going, well, doesn't seem right that we go through the same process and get two different words when biblically consecration is a word that's used and ordination is never used in the bible so that's all back to front and so they've for the last two years they've been working studying reflecting uh, teaching pastors and presenting to them do we change this language so all of the pastors and some representatives from churches around the u.s will gather this week All the information will be presented and then they'll vote on whether that gets changed or gets kept the same. Whether some of it gets changed, whether all of it gets changed, then this is the beauty of being a part of the denomination that we're in. They have a theological framework that they sit in, but they're not sitting there going, we figured it out and it will never change. They're in a process of studying and examining and asking the corporate group to do the same and then to come together and seek God's leading together on what the right step is moving forward. So, all that said, we're in a situation where in our church, the lead pastor, until God changes this, the lead pastor will be male. 
There will be men and women on our leadership team, but there's this title that is, give, that is elder and that will only be given to men. Not every man on, on the leadership team will have it. There may even be elders that are not on the leadership team who still carry that function in, in the church. But here is my promise and commitment. Just like A.B. Simpson, just like what I see in Paul and what I would argue, just like I see in Jesus, I am committed to making sure every woman in this room is empowered to do exactly what it is that God's called them to do. Uh, And my job is to take the leadership I've been given and submit it to you for your benefit. And when we are reappointing leaders and elders in this church, uh, it's the same deal. Like we will as a team, as, as a team as we currently are and as the team moving forward, we will be committed to men and women working in partnership to do all that God has called us to do. I guess I've got to wrap this up kind of quickly. So there you go. That's the theology and history and denominational lesson. Appoint God the leadership. Character matters the most. You'll hear this phrase from me. Um, if you're, well, don't put the next one up. If you're on the leadership team or around me at all, what's my phrase? As go the leaders, so go the church. This is what this passage is about. He's given instructions. How we function as a leadership is how the church will go. The denomination, when they came in to bring us into redevelopment, they remove all the leadership and all the structures because the structures that were there led the church into decline. And so you need to take it all away and start again. And so we, like, as go the leaders, so go the church. This church will only be as effective as its leaders are. So I am going to be rigorous in what I require of people who are in leadership here in order to walk in the way of Jesus. So let's look very quickly uh, at just a broad brush strokes um, of, of this passage and these requirements. And this is for everyone in the room, male or female. Paul says, whoever aspires to overseer should be this kind of person. So this is the sorts of things you want to set your life toward. And I promise you, uh, if you do this in the church, you will flourish. If you do this, you will flourish in the world as well, because this is the kind of character that the world looks to. Um, So there are seven descriptors he gives in verse 2. There are three prohibitions he gives in verse 3. And then some little explanatory pieces at the end. So... The most important one, number one, above reproach. The overseer is to be above reproach. No one should be able to look at your life and call into question your fidelity to God or the scriptures. And this one is the capstone through which these, all the other principles he's about to describe uh, hang. You don't want elders where people are coming up to, or leaders in the church where people are going up going, I think this person believes this and does this and is bickering about people behind their back and looking at pornography and they're misusing their money. You don't want people who are in question. You want people that when the church looks at them says, yes, I might not agree with who they are or what they do or the opinions they have, but they are living faithfully with Jesus and it's evident in their life. They have to be above reproach, faithful, temperate. So all of these words are about control, self-control, respectable. That means we look at them and value and esteem them. I think one of the ones that's more important to our church is hospitable. The word hospitable, in Romans they use it in reference to entertaining Christians. Most commonly in, in that culture, and we see it in Hebrews, the word literally means love of strangers. 
Being hospitable is not, I open my home and a bunch of Christians come and sit in the room and we talk about the Bible. Hospitable is, I'm the kind of person that someone that doesn't see the world the same as me feels safe around and and I create space where they can come and learn and be understood. And so to be in leadership here, uh, you gotta be hospitable. Are you having people over? Are you engaging in relationship? Are you pursuing people? Do they feel safe and heard around you? And are you able to teach? And what's implied in teaching Are you still learning? Have you decided you figured out all of theology and you know all and there's nothing more to learn? Have you decided that that you you don't need that stuff? I've done it in the past. I don't need it anymore. And we've got to be able, uh, teachable and able to learn. So we've got to be above reproach. And then he gives some things that we're not to be. And I think you see on this list, it's not an exhaustive list. Um, Can you jump on a couple of slides, Brad? There we go. So a few things here that we're not to be, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. These these have universal application, but they're also things really apply to their culture and I would say to our culture too. But there are things that are qualifications for eldership that he doesn't list that should be part of it in our churches today. Um, but yeah, not given to drunkenness. It doesn't say you can't touch alcohol, but you're supposed to have a healthy relationship to the alcohol that enters your body. Not violent, but gentle. Not someone that's causing problems and bashing people and steamrolling over people. Not quarrelsome. If we're bitter and critical, if, you, if you're one of those people that gets in a room and all you do is complain and gripe, you're not fit for leadership biblically. Um, and what, what happens is we have men who are grumblers and complainers and angry that we put into eldership because they're men and women who are kind and gentle and spiritual that are excluded because they're women. Uh, so if we're going to hold complementarian theology as a denomination, then it means we have to be rigorous at expecting that people are going to sit in leadership, especially if they are men. Um, so there are things that we're not supposed to do. And lastly, I, I think this last piece is really about consistency in their living. He must manage his family well and see that his children obey him. Not a recent convert. He's got to have some time under his belt. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. There are lots of people uh, who lead in the church. Who And, and I, I sit in these conversations all the time where people are like, this guy, um, he's my boss, he's horrible, and yet he's an elder at his church. And that's the reason they've rejected Christianity is because of the boss that they work with. And we're supposed to have a good reputation with those outside. And what that doesn't mean is a good reputation among the small subculture outside that you enjoy. It's what about the neighbor who doesn't agree with you? Do they think of you as a person of good character? Um, They don't have to like or agree, but would they say you're a kind person in the way of Jesus? Last thing I want to read to you. Sorry, this is a longer one today. Uh, This is um, from a complementarian scholar, Robert Yarbrough, in a pillar New Testament commentary. But I liked his summary of what's going on at the end of this passage. He says, verse 5, about managing your house well, kids obeying, is not about a husband cracking the whip at home so he can bring the same people-taming talent to a congregation. A caricature that many translators help guide It's rather about the love of the Father through the gospel for his people finding full and authentic expression in the real daily private life of a father and husband as requisite before he's considered for appointment to shepherd in God's flock. 
Key congregational essentials are exercised first in the marriages and homes of church members or it's sheer hypocrisy to pretend that they exist on Sundays. So forgiveness, here for others, I should stop and go back one, forgiveness, right? I have lots of conversations with people in here who are not good at that one. Forgiveness, care for others, prayer and regard for God's word, self-sacrifice, loving service, respect for others, listening to others, find enjoying what pleases others rather than oneself, making personal changes, forsaken sin for the sake of improved relations with other family members, in many cases seemingly endless, delayed gratification and much more. Paul writes to Timothy to cultivate congregations of real life authenticity, not showcases for religious pretending. This task requires big men, not little autocrats. Um, and so just, I mean, that language, he's complementarian, so he's using a, a lot of male language there. But at the end of the day, it's faithfulness and consistency seen in your home life and in your neighborhood uh, and in your pursuit of Jesus that, that then qualifies you and demonstrates that you're the kind of person that knows how to interpret his word, how to hear from him and how to live it faithfully in the world and motivate others to do it. So last slide. We should be living like overseers long before we're ever appointed as overseers. This is the goal. Like women, if you are egalitarian in the room, I'm sorry that right now there's a cap on you being able to have the title elder or not. But here's my request. Live like an elder. And prove people wrong if that's the case by the way you live your life and model what it's supposed to be. Put the men to shame by being a better elder than they are. Men... Like, if you're not an elder yet, live like it. Like, show us, show me, show us that you're the kind of person that's worthy of being called into this because you're pursuing Jesus, you're living this kind of life, and you're the kind of person that can helpfully lead our church forward into what it's going to be. So let me pray. God, this stuff is hard, it's confusing, it's, uh, uh, it's not as clear as I want it to be. Um, but God, I thank you that you're in control And what I do know is regardless of what the structure is, when men and women work together in submission to your word, empowered by your spirit, we are changed and the world is impacted. Uh, And so God, may we be a church that uh, honors scripture, that honors the leadership that's been placed over us in our denomination, but that fights to empower every person uh, to walk into the fullness of what God has for them. So help us to be true to you, Help us to be kind and help us to be humble in the way we do it. In Jesus' name.